This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Our first reading is taken from the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, verses 34 to 44. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is the sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are for the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day, besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and besides all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruits of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows on the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be the statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in the booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 16, verses 11 through 17. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days, when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your wine press, and you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. Seven days you will keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will surely rejoice. 
Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospel reading today is taken from Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And they went, and as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, Were not ten made clean, but the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we uh, again are grateful you've called us to this place today to worship. And Lord, we ask that uh, we would all receive from you. We want to give, but Lord, we also want to receive. So Lord, as we praise you and come to your table, listen to your word, we ask that uh, indeed you would uh, speak to each one of us. We pray that uh, you would give each of us grace, Lord, not only grace to rejoice, but Lord, grace to put away our anxieties and our resentment and to fully enter into your presence and to enjoy all that you have for each one of us. We ask this again for the sake of Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord and Savior. Going to um, just look at the gospel passage today in context with uh, the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. And um, usually when it comes to uh, the feast, we often change the lectionary readings, the, the readings uh, assigned to us uh, by the church, and we follow the revised common lectionary, which is used probably by 75, 80% of all Christians around the world. So uh, here uh, today on the Feast of uh, on Arab Sukkot, the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, most Christians in most parts of the world will be reading uh, the story of the Grateful Samaritan. And uh, it fits very beautifully, I think, with uh, the message of Sukkot and what um, God has to say to us. So I'd just like to look at the passage for a moment. If you have a Bible, of course, it's Luke 17. And uh, the context of this is important because the context is uh, certainly about discipleship. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's teaching and modeling what discipleship looks like, what it means to be his student, what it means to be his uh, uh, imitator. And of course, he's not uh, simply um, 
talking about this in an intellectual way or giving you a 10-point program, but uh, Jesus himself will um, not demonstrate this uh, in his lifestyle and the way that he lives. And of course, he will illustrate this uh, in his parables and he will expound upon this uh, in his teaching. Uh, at the beginning of the chapter, uh, we had the question, uh, the disciples said, you know, increase our faith. And last week we talked about uh, uh, what faith looks like, what faith does. Because this is a very uh, Jewish question. Uh, oftentimes we, um, in our tradition, especially a Western Christian tradition, we sometimes or often actually, we ask the wrong question. The question we ask is, what is faith? And what is love? And what, uh, what is holiness, for example? These are all questions that uh, we might ask ourselves or uh, we might ask uh, the preacher, the one who leads the Bible study, if not God himself. Uh, probably a better question, a more Jewish question, a more biblical question might be, what does holiness do? Not only what is the truth, but what does the truth do? How does, how does the truth behave? Uh, and that, how, what does love do? Not simply what is love, but what does love do? And of course, it's not just what is faith, but what does faith do? And more often than not, as we discovered last week or we talked about last week, faith is not simply a matter of trust uh, and reliance. Uh, It is that indeed, but there's a complete other side to faith. There's another side to this coin, uh, and this is faithfulness. And so often in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, not in every case, but very often, uh, for example, in the Gospels, in the book of Hebrews, uh, uh, book of Revelation, when faith is mentioned or faith is uh, focused on, uh, it's talking about what it means to be faithful. And you can almost answer or ask the question that we find at the beginning of chapter 17, uh, verse 1, where the, the disciples say, increase our faith. They're virtually saying from a Hebraic Jewish perspective, you know, increase our faithfulness. How can we, how can we, how can all of us be faithful? What does it mean to be faithful? What does faithfulness look like? How do we get from the place of being trustful, of relying upon or depending upon, uh, entering into relationship, okay, with uh, Jesus, uh, the Messiah, the one who, who lives for us and dies for us, how, do, how does that translate into our everyday life? And I think this story is really marvelous because here what we learn that what it means, and I'll give you the end here at the beginning in case you go to sleep 45 minutes from now. It's been known to happen, you know. Just don't fall off the chair. Faithfulness, especially in this story, and in the celebrations, a celebration, celebrating, I should say, the Feast of the Lord, faithfulness has everything to do with gratitude and worship. Gratitude and worship. So let's look at our story for a moment. Here, 
We have Jesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, He's heading south. It sounds, uh, sometimes people accuse Luke of not knowing his geography, but that, that oftentimes is not actually true. And sometimes the people who write such nonsense and commentators and commentaries uh, have actually never been to Israel. Uh, so they themselves know it's true. They, they themselves don't know what the geography of first century Judea was like. But probably Jesus in this case is uh, heading through. Uh, he's going eastwards or southeastwards. He's going through the Jezreel Valley. He's going through a border area, an area that's... Um, a dividing line between Samaritans uh, and Jews. And of course, on the way, he meets uh, these 10 uh, lepers. Um, And these lepers, of course, uh, by Jewish law, and even the, the portion of the scripture that the Samaritan accepted, lepers were um, unclean. Well, they weren't unclean physically, uh, but they had, they, they, you might say, there was, uh, the category would be uncleanness. There was um, something about them that prevented them from living in the community, from living in the society, the living amongst God's people. Uh, and that was that their leprosy uh, made them appear as if they were in the process of decaying. And so what made you impure, uh, biblically speaking, uh, wasn't actually sin. This is sometimes a hard thing to get across to people. But what, you made, what made you impure uh, in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament was when you came into contact with death. When you touched a dead body, when you touched a dead animal that wasn't uh, slaughtered properly, Uh, a woman's afterbirth, a menstrual period, even a man having marital relations with his wife, and all of these things, something dies. And God is a God of life. And the people of Israel, and actually even the church, we need to reflect, we must reflect God's character uh, and reflect to the world who God is. And because God hates sin and he hates death, he not only prohibited uh, or, or, or told Israel over and over again not to sin, and this is, and he gave, he laid out the definition, but he also told Israel, I don't want you to come into contact with death. And once you come into contact with death, I want you to go into a pool of living water, water that uh, was collected somehow by natural means, and I want you to dip yourself Okay, now in the case of someone having leprosy, um, it wasn't so easy because uh, you couldn't just have leprosy, go into a pool of living water. And by the way, what, what is the symbolism there? Because there's some very powerful symbolism uh, in this living water. Living water is something that comes from God. Rain water, spring water, lake water, and living water Uh, cleanses us from death. Uh, And the symbolism there is very simply that God is more powerful than death. God is more powerful than death. So uh, lepers, of course, couldn't go, have leprosy, go into the the river or the ritual bath, uh, dunk themselves and come out because they would still have leprosy. 
But if, when their leprosy was cured, they could go show themselves to the priest. So Jesus meets the 10, the 10 cry out for mercy. Jesus says, go to the priests. And here, by the way, is another um, example, one of many multitude that we have in the New Testament that shows us that Jesus was uh, a Torah observant Jew, meaning Jesus obeyed what was written um, in the Hebrew Bible. Sometimes he obeyed the law. Sometimes we think of Jesus as this religious rebel who came to to break all these rules and regulations. But here Jesus is uh, being obedient, not only to the spirit of the law, but to the letter of the law as well. And then the 10 go off, and then one comes back. And the only one that comes back is the Samaritan. Now, I want you to... um, be very careful here. Sometimes we read about the parable of the Good Samaritan, and other times we read this story, and then we think to ourselves, well, those Samaritans must have been virtuous. They must have been holy and righteous somehow. They're really good guys. But there's nothing good. Uh, the, the Samaritans themselves, Jesus isn't using them because of their virtue. In fact, my son, a few years ago, He was in a Samaritan neighborhood south of Tel Aviv. We were together, and he decided to play basketball with a bunch of kids, Samaritan kids. And you know that's quite a feat, because there's only like six or 700 of them left, so I don't know how they got up a whole basketball team. And then after after he finished the game, I I said, well, how was it? He said, Dad, they cheated. (laughs) (laughs) So the point here, And this is, by the way, this is a big point. This is a big part of Luke and Acts, okay? Is that it's oftentimes those who are desperate, the sinners of Israel, outsiders, Gentiles, Samaritans, people who aren't secure in their religious status, people who who don't depend on or rely upon their denomination, or their theology, or their money, or their physical appearance, or their social standing. These are the people who don't need rescue, or who who say to themselves, I don't need this, okay? These are the people who think to themselves, we don't need healing. Maybe they say it to themselves and say it to to others. But for for Luke and Acts, uh, it's the desperate. Okay, and so this Samaritan is an outsider. That's the point. Uh, And the Samaritan comes to Jesus, and of course Jesus has a question for him. Um, Simply this, he says, were not all 10 cleansed, where were the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except for this foreigner? And this foreigner not only comes back to show gratitude, okay, to, And by the way, it it took an effort for him to to go out of his way to go back and to to show how to show how grateful he was. But the foreigner throws himself throws him threw himself at the feet of Jesus and thanked him and thanked him. This is an act of worship. This is an act of homage. This is an act of acknowledging who actually who Jesus is. And Jesus has has. Incredible words for this person and for us as well. He says, rise and go. Your faith 
And, and every time Jesus talks about this, whenever he says, your faith has made you well, he's always referring to faithfulness. I've said this before, and those who, who have, to, have heard this before will ha- probably have to take a minute and yawn. But when Jesus uh, is coming uh, from the Jordan River into Jericho, what happens? He meets uh, a blind man who refuses to shut up, who cries out, who screams, who's persistent. And that persistence, Jesus says, that's the same as faithfulness. He says, your faith has made you well. The man, the, the, the man who's on the pallet, who needs uh, healing, but they, his friends can't get him in the front door, they actually have the nerve, the chutzpah, to open someone's roof and to let the man down. Jesus heals that man and says to them, you're, you, you, they're your friends, he says, your associates, their faith, okay, their refusal to give up has made you well. And Jesus says to this man, your faith, your faithfulness has, has, made, you, has made you well. It has brought healing to you. It has brought, it has brought about this particular healing. Now, how does this story, which is, I think, very important for us, how does it relate to the feast? How does it relate to the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, there are a lot of similarities, I believe. And uh, the first is that uh, this particular feast, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, and all the feasts, uh, includes foreigners, includes people who are outside includes people who are, margin, who are marginal, are on the edge of society. You know, God is always trying to bring everybody in and create, create a community. This isn't just feast for uh, Israel or feast for Jews. This is the feast, uh, feast of the Lord. And everybody in the land, at least, is welcome to come and to participate uh, and certainly to to take part in all this. I think the other thing, other two things that are really important here is that the feast itself, what is the main characteristic of this feast? And I said, what if you think of Sukkot, if the the word Sukkot comes to your mind, what's the first word that pops in your head or first image? People think of the sukkah. Certainly that becomes, or people... uh, think of uh, blowing of the shofar. But really, what characterizes this feast and makes it so different than all the other feasts of the Lord is that in this particular feast, as we read in the book of Deuteronomy, God commands us to be joyful. Now, God usually is not in the business of telling us how to feel. And is it not true? We don't like when people tell us how to feel. Yes, we, we object uh, God is not in the business of telling us how we should feel. He's in the business of telling us what we should obey. He says uh, you should obey these things because they're good for us, because they'll actually bring us blessing. But here God says, I want you to rejoice. Now, what better way of rejoicing? What is maybe the highest form of uh, rejoicing? Is showing gratitude, is being grateful for what God has done. And we are to come, God commands his people, again, to make an effort. See, gratitude isn't just being happy in our heart. 
Oh, I'm so happy, I'm so thankful. What does gratitude mean here? Gratitude is a little bit like that Samaritan. You've got to make an effort. You're not earning something. This is the, this is the mistake. You're not paying God back, but you sh- you're, you're making an adequate response. If you're penniless and someone gives you a million dollars and you don't bother to even send an email, to go and say thank you, to bring a gift, whatever that may be, that's a pretty poor response. And by the way, that is our response often. Oh yeah, we take it for granted. Grace, I didn't earn it. I don't need to do anything. Wow, it's a free gift. Yes, it's a free gift that we need to respond. We need to do something. And so here God says, I've been good to you all year. Your harvest is now in. I want you to come to Jerusalem. And I want you not to come grudgingly because, you know, it's a hassle. Close your house, close your business, whatever it may be. Make that long journey to Jerusalem. Maybe it's dangerous, arduous. I want you to come and to make a response. I want you to come before me. And basically what I want you to do is worship. That's the response to gratitude. That's the way we express gratitude. We express gratitude in worship. But we don't come empty-handed. We don't come empty-handed. You know, we are to bring gifts to the Lord. We are to make sacrifices to the Lord. And one of those sacrifices, okay, is to be, one of the sacrifices is to obey the command to be joyful. The other is not to come empty-handed, but to bring something to give to the Lord. Now we make a sacrifice. We pay for an animal or bring an animal. And sacrifices, when we give something to the Lord, it should cost us something. That's the principle. We don't give something, we don't, we're not giving the Lord spare change. To show our gratitude and our appreciation, we do something sacrificial. Yes, that's why you sacrificed an animal in ancient times, because the animals were expensive and they were very valuable. And so this represented. But secondly, we, not, we bring money and especially bring money for the poor. Yes, that's our way of worship, is financial, okay? And first and foremost, by making sure that our attitude is correct. And I'm, I, I can't prove it, but I, I'm sure that Paul, when he writes, the Lord loves a cheerful giver, is thinking of these verses about making pilgrimage to Jerusalem, rejoicing, being happy, yes, as a way of expressing our gratitude and our thanksgiving uh, to, uh, to the Lord. But you know, some of us have a difficulty. And, and there are things that keep us actually from expressing gratitude at perhaps the purest uh, level. We can say, yeah, I'm grateful. But um, there are many people who I've talked to over the years who have a hard time coming to Jerusalem and metaphorically sitting in the sukkah and saying thank you to God because many of us cannot live in the present. Many of us live in this idealized past. And by the way, the past and nostalgia for the past uh, is a false messiah. 
because it was never as good as we remembered or never as wonderful as we imagined. And many of us are anxious about the future. And it's hard to just sit and enjoy God's presence, to enjoy God's goodness. There's a restlessness in our souls. And secondly, there is resentment. Many of us have a hard time being rejoicing and being thankful in the midst of all that has happened to us because we say to ourselves, I'm better than this. I deserve to a better job. I don't deserve to be single. Um, I don't know why these things happen to me. And the opposite of the, the, the black opposite, complete opposite of being grateful is resentment. And the older we get, the easier it is to become resentful. Is that not true? Yes. <laughs> we look at all the things that happen to us. We think our life doesn't make sense and it's all very random. Yes. This is um, the great enemy. This is what, this is what prevents us okay, from actually rejoicing before the Lord. And we need, in both cases, we need to be like that Samaritan. We need to be healed. We need our souls need to be healed. Not just physical healing, but emotional healing or psychological healing or healing within. We need to come to the place where we can just let things go. You know, the Christian life isn't always about holiness and it's not always about perfection and it's not always about discipleship and doing God's will. It is about all those things. But paradoxically, it's about resting in the Lord. It's about living in the sukkah. It's not very secure and it's fragile. It's fragile. But my dear friends, life is fragile. And life in and of itself is secure, insecure. And we all need to accept that. But at the same time, we can live in that sukkah and allow God to care for us. Allow God to care for us. So many of us have huge anxieties and worries, uh, things that come from our past or trauma that's, been, that's happened to us or happened to our parents. We need to come before the Lord and ask him to bring healing to us. But in the process, we need to continue to be faithful. Okay. We need to continue to be faithful. Many of us have resentment, lots of resentment. Things just haven't worked. People don't appreciate me. You know, I, I don't have a ministry like I think I should. My name isn't in lights, so on and so forth. Yes, but we need to let that resentment go. And I think the first step in letting the resentment go is that we, instead of telling everybody else how bitter we are or how we've been cheated or how um, our parents didn't leave us money in their will, whatever. That's a big one, isn't it? My goodness. I had a nickel for every time someone told me they'd been cheated and they didn't receive an inheritance. I'd be rich. I'd be retired and living in Portugal. <laughs> because they say you can live there cheaply. <laughs> I'd want a 
hoard my money, you know, and you never know what might happen in the future, right? So, um, yeah, I think the first place we express resentment or complaint or to pour out our bitterness is we do it to God. As a person who should listen to it, be the one who listens to us. God is the one who cares for us. God is the one who made us. God is the one who's ordered the events in our lives. And God's got very, very broad shoulders. He can take it. He can take an argument. He can take a lot of complaints. Last week we read, we preached from Habakkuk. And Habakkuk was doing nothing but complaining. Nothing but complaining. And God answered. God gave Habakkuk some answers. Maybe they weren't sufficient. Maybe Habakkuk doesn't, didn't totally understand why all these things were happening. But in the end, Habakkuk says, even though things look disastrous around me, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Because I've come to it just by asking those questions, maybe by pouring out our complaint, and I've come to a better understanding of God and His faithfulness. I don't always have the answers. But I know that he will do justly. Yes, the wicked will be judged. The righteous will be rewarded. And in the case of a New Testament perspective, it might be in this life or the life to come. So my dear friends, we, again, need to look at those things that stop us from not only expressing gratitude, but to keep us from rejoicing before the Lord. My my, uh, teacher and dear friend, Dwight Pryor, used to say uh, that many of us are afraid of joy. Yes, we're afraid to be joyful. We're afraid to let go and to be exuberant. Uh, We may be embarrassed. We may think we might somehow get out of control. And uh, if, we, if you do, we'll tell you. And in the process, we need to be faithful as, the, as we wait for the Lord to healing, to heal us. You see, if we want, this is what we bring to the Lord. We're not bringing, coming to Jerusalem and bringing an animal. Thank goodness that is finished with. But we come before the Lord, and if we want mercy, we should give mercy to others. That's, what, that's our sacrifice, even if it hurts us to be merciful to others. If we want forgiveness, then we need to give forgiveness to others. Yes? If we want um, generosity, we want God's provision to flow in our lives, then we need to be generous with others. Yes? I think, and most of all, throughout everything, we need to express gratitude in a very practical and tangible way. All of this, this faithfulness will indeed bring us healing, not only healing to our souls, but healing to our families and healing to our community. Let's pray. Lord, we do call upon you, the God of healing, and we ask that uh, those things, those roadblocks in our life, that sin, that rebellion, perhaps even that laziness, we pray that you'll you'll remove each one of these obstacles. 
so that we can truly come before you. That we do not come empty-handed, but that we come uh, bringing you gifts, uh, the gifts of forgiveness and mercy and generosity towards your people. And Lord, that we come rejoicing, rejoicing in you uh, and all that you've done for us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The danger of not expressing gratitude. And I thought about this while we're doing communion. But in Deuteronomy 28, it says that Israel goes into exile and Israel is punished because they did not serve the Lord joyfully and gladly. They did not serve the Lord with a glad heart. And so may this be a warning to us and may it encourage us to examine ourselves before the Lord and ask him to remove all those things, all those roadblocks that uh, keep us from really uh, honest, in an honest way, yes, authentic way, rejoicing before him. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.